The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, it's time to open the scriptures together, and uh, I hope that you are reaching for a Bible now. As we open up to Matthew chapter 5, uh, we have been looking at the Beatitudes now for a, a number of weeks. We are drawing toward the close, actually, of the Beatitudes, and uh, we find in verse 10 is what we're looking at this morning, that this is the last of the formal Beatitudes, and from verses 11 and 12 will be summaries of all of the Beatitudes. But we've been looking at this Sermon on the Mount, so if you haven't already, let's do open together to Matthew chapter 5. And you have an outline in your bulletin, and there are a couple other uh, scripture citations there that you may want to be prepared to flip to, or at least uh, maybe uh, be aware of. I'll be re- referring to those things, but take your handout and take your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Now, uh, just in introduction to this, what Jesus is doing, and he has been doing throughout the Sermon on the Mount, is he has been speaking to all who would hear him about the importance of belonging to his kingdom and being a true citizen of his true kingdom. Now the reason why he is going to such detail to describe that kingdom to all who would listen is that in his day and in ours, people have the wrong idea about what the kingdom is all about. In the first century, to Jewish ears, When Jesus is speaking of a kingdom, they made the assumption that the kingdom that he was talking about was only a kingdom of this immediate physical realm, a kingdom only of this earth. But Jesus comes in the Gospels speaking about a kingdom of heaven and a kingdom of heaven that has been manifest and begun in the world. And so this spiritual kingdom has earthly realities, but it's not just earthly, it's also spiritual. It is earthly and heavenly. And so for the Jews, when they heard Jesus speaking of a kingdom, they thought a political realm of this present earth. But Jesus says, no, it's a kingdom of heaven that's come to earth to make influence. And so Jesus' words to us here are not just encouragements for things only of this earth and things only of our external character and our outward actions. Jesus is concerned to get to the very heart and soul of who we are as those who make professions of faith in Jesus Christ so that our lives demonstrate that we are truly citizens of this heavenly kingdom that's come to earth. So Jesus is saying, I'm not talking about the kingdom as so many people tend to think, but I am talking about the kingdom as it truly is. And I want you to understand not just what that kingdom is, but how to know whether or not you are truly a citizen of it. So therefore, it's not enough just to know what the kingdom is in general It is also important to be able to discern, to understand, to look at my life and answer the question, am I a citizen of the kingdom over which Jesus reigns? Is my profession of faith of Jesus as Lord a genuine profession? Jesus invites us in the Sermon on the Mount to ascend that mountain with him and sit at his feet and hear the king speak. And we've been doing that We come now to the last beatitude. So let us pray and ask God's blessing on his word 
as we seek the illumination of the Spirit upon the Scriptures. Oh Lord God, we bow in your presence, thankful that you have gathered your people here in this sanctuary. Lord, we are mindful that on the Lord's Day, people from uh, every tribe and tongue and nation gather together to hear your word. And so, Lord, in this place, at this time, amongst this community, Lord, we come to you, scriptures open, hearts ready, and ears willing. And so, Lord, we pray that in response to our desires, Lord, that you would now come and speak powerfully to us in the authority of your word and in the power of your spirit. In the name of your Son, we ask it. Amen. So hear now the word of God from Matthew 5 through to verse 10. This is the word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever and ever. And so may he write his eternal truth on our hearts today. Uh, as I said, we're going to be flipping back and forth through these various ten verses and also to a few other places, so you want to keep your Bible open here. But we're especially looking at verse 10 this morning. Verse 10, again, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, as you're looking at that, I want to acknowledge that at first glance, uh, verse 10 and this eighth beatitude might give us something of whiplash here because as it falls after verse 9, Jesus has just been lifting up the virtue of peacemaking and the beauty of peacemaking and the importance of peacemaking and uh, the sake of the kingdom, the sons of God, those who pursue uh, peacemaking. And now, right after verse 9, as he speaks of peacemaking, he gets into verse 10 and the experience of hostility. Peacemaking and then hostility. You might expect the Beatitudes to be moving in a different direction as Jesus speaks of things moving towards great blessing and abundance and goodness and joy. But now he's concluding the Beatitudes speaking about persecution. Now we're going to be looking quite in depth about what Jesus is saying here. But let me be hopefully as clear as possible at the beginning that persecution, what Jesus is going to be speaking about here, is not a pleasant reality. This beatitude is not calling on us to enjoy persecution in and of itself because persecution is not a joyful experience. But what Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying that there is a kind of persecution that has God's blessing attached to it. 
There is a particular kind of persecution that has God's blessing attached to it, and that's what we want to see. And so consider this, that when a Christian believer, when a Christian believer is growing in their faith, when they are growing in their faith and growing in their obedience to Jesus, and when in growing in obedience to Jesus, they are growing in their sincerity in such a way that their inward spiritual life begins to be outwardly demonstrated to such a degree that those who do not share that commitment and obedience to Jesus begin to take notice negatively persecution is going to result. When faith grows, when obedience grows, when sincerity grows, and a life is transformed in obedience to Jesus, a watching world takes notice, and their notice is not an appreciative notice. So, we want to see two things fundamentally this morning. And the first is that Jesus is speaking of the fruit of righteousness being persecution. So in the first place, the fruit of righteousness is persecution. Now, we've already been using the word. And Jesus clearly uses it here in verse 10. But what is, what is persecution? I think oftentimes this word is thrown around uh, sometimes inappropriately. What is persecution? We might have a general understanding here, but when Jesus speaks of persecution, he is using a word that literally means to put to flight or to pursue or to drive away. It's a very emphatic verb that is being used to speak of the sending away, sometimes by force, of another person. And the particular verb tense that's being used here, and uh, just to give a little bit more of the grammar here, the verb tense that Jesus is using is describing a putting to flight and pursuit and being driven away, not just once, but once and then again and then continually with future meaning and future impact. So it's not a one-time thing. It's a thing that often describes action that's in the past with present implications and implications that continue on into the future. So it's a, an impact of persecution that is really across the whole of life. Now, we associate persecution in various ways, in various periods of history, and in various forms, whether it be physical or verbal. But for now, just consider that persecution is the hostility and inflicted suffering that comes on people who do not hold to the beliefs of the age. I think that we can say that across whatever era of the church, whatever history, persecution is the hostility and inflicted suffering that comes on people who do not hold to the beliefs of the age. That's what persecution is. And Jesus is here saying in this eighth beatitude that persecution will come upon the true citizens of his kingdom. But notice that Jesus does not bless all kinds of persecution no matter what, right? It's not the case that Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted, end of sentence. He doesn't say that. And so there's an implication in there that we need to understand because it might be possible that persecution might come into our lives for any number of reasons. Persecution maybe half, uh, may perhaps come into our life for a reason that we deserve, that's what actually the Apostle Peter means 
when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, let none of you suffer as a murderer. Or let none of you suffer as a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Peter is saying, don't, don't suffer because of your disobedience. Don't suffer because of your sin. Right? Peter is assuming a person who is standing up in the court of law who has just been convicted of a murder and saying, that's not fair, I'm being persecuted. No, you deserve that. It has come upon you by way of necessity. Jesus is talking about a particular kind of persecution. And so, in other words, we're ruling out a number of things here. If you are persecuted because you're a nuisance or because you're generally an objectionable person or because you're difficult or foolish or you're an insulting person by nature to other people, Jesus is not excusing that type of behavior. And he's not blessing you to just be a jerk and then claim I'm being persecuted. That's not the case at all. Jesus is speaking a qualified blessing that those who are blessed in their persecution are those who are blessed because they are being persecuted for what? For the sake of righteousness. And so that is not a broad brush blessing, is it? Persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Jesus is speaking of those who are so committed to God's cause, whose lives are being outwardly transformed into the kind of outward obedience and genuine conviction that he's been talking about all through the Beatitudes. He says, if righteousness is influencing your life, it begins to look like the character and spirit of the Beatitudes. So scan back over them. Look again, starting in verse 3. Jesus is saying that righteousness looks like the one who is poor in spirit. And the one who is poor in spirit is living a life in contradiction to the pride and arrogance of the unbelieving heart. And is therefore persecuted perhaps as a result. In verse 4, the person who is mournful and repentant in their heart over their sins is not appreciated by a world that is absorbed with itself and as a result generates hostility. The person who is pursuing gentleness and meekness of their character as a result of their humility before God is looked upon by an unbelieving world as weak and worthless. The one who hungers and thirsts for the things of Jesus, that person is repulsive to a world that is craving the lusts of the things of the world. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is contradictory to the hunger and thirst for earthly things. The person who is merciful is someone who is offensive to people who are always grudge-bearing and unforgiving as a way of life. The person who is pure in heart is an offense to the person who lives in a way that is self-centered and impure in the culture of the world. The peacemaker embarrasses and aggravates the person who loves conflict. When we pursue in genuine righteousness the, the character of life and true citizenship of Jesus' kingdom, it necessarily brings about a contrast and contradiction to the spirit of the age. And that's at the bottom of all of this, what Jesus is saying here then in verse 10. When we are and as we are transformed by Christ's own righteousness, we become less like the prevailing ethic and morals and wisdom and goals of this age and this places the kingdom of Jesus in stark 
contrast to the kingdom of this world. And so when Jesus speaks of persecution for righteousness' sake, he means persecution because of your love for him. Persecution because of your obedience to him and your affection for him, your loyalty to him. And so mark this very clearly. Real loyalty to Jesus necessarily creates friction with the world because light always exposes darkness and darkness, the Bible tells us, hates the light. Why? Why the friction? Why the tension? Why the turmoil? Because true loyalty to Jesus displays Christ as glorious and worthy and therefore presents the unbelieving world with only one of two options. To bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord or attempt to silence him. And if we will not bow to Jesus, then the only way to silence Jesus is to attempt to silence those who live for him in this current age. And as a result, persecution comes from that. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of my kingdom. Jesus is saying here that the fruit of righteousness is persecution. And we need to be convinced of this. I want to try to do that in two ways. One, to convince us from the testimony of Scripture, but also to convince us by looking at the world around us. So first of all, why is persecution the fruit of righteousness? How do we know this? Because the Bible tells us so. Consider in John 15, Jesus is in the upper room on the night of his arrest with his disciples. And this topic of persecution and turmoil and suffering is, is of such importance that Jesus gives considerable time and considerable length of instruction to this very topic. Listen to the words of Jesus speaking to the disciples in John 15. The Lord Jesus says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus says, they will persecute you. Do you see how Jesus is trying to temper the expectations of the disciples? Don't be surprised, Jesus says, when you're following me on the narrow road. The people who are traveling the broad road don't like the narrow road. And they despise those who walk on it. The Apostle Paul also adds to this understanding when he tells the believers in the congregation at Philippi that this reality of persecution and suffering is as much of a reality in your life as the forgiveness of your sins. He says this in Philippians 1.29, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. He's saying, this is granted to you. It's a gift. Your faith in Jesus Christ that forgives your sins and the reality of being united to Christ and sharing in Jesus' own sufferings. Your faith and your sufferings. And if that's not clear enough, Paul says so directly to his young friend Timothy, 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, he says this, 
Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Will be, not maybe, but will be persecuted. Now, there's more that we could say about that, and you see some extra citations on your outline, but let's be very, very, very extraordinarily clear on this point. That because we follow a crucified Savior, we should not expect approval from a world that rejects Jesus. We should not expect approval from a world that rejects Jesus. And so the persecution that Jesus speaks about here is the fruit of the reality of righteousness transforming our lives because the Bible says so, but also because of what we see in the world. Now, I don't want to extend too much time to this, but I do want to remind us here about this point that the sincere Christian life challenges the prevailing ethic of the age. Where you work, the people you socialize with perhaps, at home, at school, wherever you are, being a Christian person means not doing all the things that everybody else just does or not speaking like everybody else does perhaps or laughing at the same jokes. And when we don't do that, it stirs hostility and it irritates and it annoys and it angers and it causes Christians to face the wrath of a rapidly secularizing culture. George Orwell is the one who said this, who was himself no friend of Christian theism, but he said this, the further society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who speak it. Now, it used to be the case that there was no other worldview alternative to Christian theism in the world. Christian theism and the prevailing worldview of Christian monotheism was all the optional worldview, but times have changed. The Enlightenment has come and gone, the modern age, the postmodern age, where not only is Christian theism no longer an optional worldview among others, it has been increasingly the target of rising hostility. It is no longer an acceptable option to hold a Christian worldview in a rapidly secularizing culture. And as a result, the culture is in large measure totally ignorant of the Christian faith. And the language even of the Christian faith, meaning you can use words that mean something so clear to you that absolutely confound the logic of the age and mean something entirely different to our neighbors. Words like morality, identity, gender, marriage. Suddenly these words, which are so basic, become atomic bombs of controversy. They're seen as under constant change. And what what we are witnessing before our very eyes is the intolerance of the new tolerance, the exclusivity of the new inclusivity, and the message of this revolution is you must either totally surrender or you will become our enemy. Celebrate our revolution or die. And no matter how loud this demand becomes, The words of our Lord Jesus must not fall from our ears when he says, My sheep hear my voice, and they know me, and they follow me. Rather than sitting around bemoaning the the waxing and waning of our culture, we need to give attention to the words of the Lord Jesus. 
and stay steadfast and faithful to him because he is saying here to us, it ought not surprise us that the fruit of righteousness is persecution. We should expect it. But we must also expect, in the second place, that there is a blessing with all of this. We should not be Christians who are just whining and complaining all the time, pretending to be victims constantly, we must see ourselves as Jesus promised to be those who are blessed. So the fruit of righteousness is persecution, but the blessing of righteousness is the promise of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Now, just like every statement in the Beatitudes, Jesus affixes a blessing to what he says, and verse 10 is no exception. Notice that the blessing in verse 10 is the same one as it was in verse 3. Pick up on that. Jesus says in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. And that comes back in verse 10, the blessing, theirs is the kingdom in such a way that it it bookends the Beatitudes and and provides a comprehensive statement of this blessing. Jesus is saying, here is a mark of a true disciple. Here is a mark of one who is truly in my kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom. It belongs to them. They are citizens by grace in my kingdom because they are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Now, what what Jesus is doing here actually has two sides. Don't miss this, these two sides, because it is on the one hand deeply searching and on the other side, deeply comforting. It searches us and it comforts us. Just like every beatitude, there is a sense in which when we linger on literally just one sentence of the Lord Jesus, it's like taking a garden tiller to the wintered soil of our hearts. And it brings up what's been long underneath, perhaps, and shows us what's there. We take this and turn over the soil of our hearts, and it is, on the one hand, deeply searching. The Holy Spirit is, by verse 10, searching your heart this morning. And we should ask this question. Am I so in step with my culture that I feel no tension on this point? Is my life so easily fit into the culture of this age that I feel no tension with what Jesus is saying here? Do I experience any kind of persecution whatsoever for the sake of righteousness? Am I a true citizen of the kingdom of God? Or is my allegiance to Jesus an allegiance in outward demonstration only, in word only, and not in sincerity upon my heart. Jesus is saying that the true Christian is not able to be completely praised, loved, appreciated, and approved by everybody. And those of us who are especially given to people-pleasing will really struggle with this point. It may be crippling to some of us to realize that we have valued the approval of the world and other people above the approval and blessing of the Almighty God. And if that's us, and if we feel the light of the Holy Spirit searching out that dark corner of our hearts, Jesus is calling me, you, to repent and no longer cherish the approval of the world, to no longer cherish the ethic and the wisdom of the age, calling us to repent and confess that we have cherished the applause of man over the blessing of God. 
It searches our hearts. But it also, in addition to searching, searches our hearts, it comforts our hearts as well. And it's supposed to. Because, especially in the first century, to the Jewish mind, any experience of persecution whatsoever just meant that something was wrong with you. You did something wrong, and therefore you were persecuted, and so your life is in error. Something is wrong with you. But Jesus is here saying, if you experience any kind of hostility or mistreatment for my sake, if your association with me makes something tense in your life, it is a reflection of the reality of my work in you. Now, there are times when that persecution, we would rather it not be there. I don't know about you, but I personally have been on the receiving end of the word of a loved one that says, I hate everything that you believe. I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know what your experience has been. I don't, I don't know at work, at home, among your, I don't know what that looks like. But hear the words of the Lord Jesus say to you, when you experience that, you are blessed in my kingdom because of your faithfulness to it. My kingdom belongs to you when you own me in your heart as Lord. And then as a result, persecution becomes then as outwardly difficult, as much of a struggle as it becomes, it becomes a means of assuring us of the work of God's grace in our life in such a way that we can be comforted by that assurance. And in addition, dear friends, a willingness to obey Jesus in verse 10 might be one of the most important and effective testimonies to the reality of the gospel in your life because your faithful endurance under the heat and tension and hostility of the world says to the world that Jesus is worth it. Because the world is looking for you to say, you know what, you're right, forget it. He's not worth it and I will just go along and do whatever and say whatever. But the testimony of a sincere Christian faith that receives hostility and continues to obey says, Jesus is Lord. That's what the world needs from us. Do you understand that? The world needs that. It doesn't need us to be obnoxious. It doesn't need us to be jerks and arrogant and rude because nobody has argued into the kingdom of God. But what the world needs is a display of Jesus Christ that is seen to be so lovely, so worthy, so beautiful, that those who claim to be his followers are willing to endure even the hostility of the persecution of the age. A compelling witness of people that are willing to risk the applause of man for the blessing of God. So, loved ones, as we seek to receive and rest upon Jesus as he is offered in the gospel, he is calling us and inviting us to say that this is true of us. And so may God sustain you under your profession of faith in the gospel as you experience hostility in the world and encourage you with the reality of the surpassing worth and glory of his kingdom that far surpasses anything of this age. Amen. Let us pray. Well, Lord God, we thank you that in the scriptures you speak to us words of truth, words of peace, words of comfort. And so, Lord, 
I would just ask you that by your Holy Spirit you would search our hearts, that you would transform us as a work of your grace. And so, Lord, bless us as we seek to live in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.